Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi there. Welcome to New Books in Medicine, a channel at New Books Network. I'm Al Kesu, and I'm delighted to have Dr. Paul Steinberg with me today to discuss his recently released book, Psychoanalysis in Medicine, Applying Psychoanalytic Thought to Contemporary Medical Care, published by Routledge in 2020. Dr. Steinberg is a psychiatrist and clinical professor of medicine at the University of British Columbia. In his newly released book, he offers his thoughts and guidance on how providers of medical care can enrich their practice using psychoanalytic ideas and techniques. Dr. Steinberg, congratulations on the tremendous achievement of composing this beautiful practical work, and thank you for joining the program today. Thank you, Alec, and thank you for inviting me. Uh, So to start off, could you tell us a bit about your background and what led you to write this book? Um, I was always interested in psychoanalytic ideas, and um, when I became a psychiatrist, I ended up having quite a varied route, inpatients, outpatients, uh, hospital consultation liaison psychiatry, liaison to family medicine. Um, I eventually ran an outpatient department and and led a um, partial hospitalization program for patients with severe personality disorders. and. Uh, in all those different venues, I, as I learned more, I gradually applied psychoanalytic ideas. I finally became a psychoanalyst, and uh, all this time I was publishing papers about the kinds of experiences I was having, and I decided to have a look at them, and I took the ones that were medically and psychiatrically um, oriented and added uh, to them based on what I learned by becoming a psychoanalyst, and that turned into a book. Got it. And I, and I guess uh, just to make sure all of our listeners and, and we're on the same page, could you start off by telling us uh, how you define psychoanalysis? Um, maybe I don't have a very uh, comprehensive definition, but one could call psychoanalysis an intensive psychological treatment that explores the individual's unconscious, especially her unconscious motivations about how she feels, thinks, and behaves. Um, the unconscious isn't just what is unbearably terrifying and painful, and therefore repressed that of conscious awareness. It also contains what's joyful, creative, interesting, exciting, fantastic. And some people are um, treated in a way which makes the, makes it, these more positive experiences too threatening to keep in mind, or they're just neglected uh, by their caregivers. And um, that can result in a person living life in a more sterile and satisfying manner than they otherwise might. Um, the term psychoanalysis also refers to a, this large group of inter- interrelated theories about the structure, contents, and functioning of the mind and of the mind's development, normal and pathological. And what do you view as the value of, of applying some of the psychoanalytic ideas to medical uh, and clinical practice beyond, um, you know, psychiatry? Um, I think uh, psychoanalytic ideas can enhance medical care in lots of different ways. Um, in terms of the treatment of care, the provision of care itself, uh, There are some medical conditions which are um, exacerbated or precipitated or uh, whose uh, course is affected adversely by psychological factors that are unconscious. Um, And if these factors can be elucidated, then uh, and and possibly, if necessary, some kind of treatment or even a brief intervention uh, done, this can beneficially affect the medical process, the progress of of treating the illness. As well, people can have adverse psychological reactions to illness management. So, for example, um, 
I'm thinking of a middle-aged man who is quite an intelligent person and good citizen, but he had such a conflict with his father, who tried to control him, that um, he couldn't listen to his endocrinologist giving him very ordinary advice about diabetic control. And because of that, he had uh, multiple hospitalizations with dangerous hypoglycemic episodes. And um, just meeting with him a few times and uh, interpreting to him how he was having a transference, transferring feelings about his relationship with his father onto his endocrinologist, and therefore not co cooperating with the endocrinologist the way he would have with almost anyone else, any other person, in particular medical uh, caregiver, really made a difference to him in terms of his understanding of what his difficulties were and um, his ability to cooperate with the endocrinologist and end up with very good control. Um, another area that psychoanalysis can contribute to is in terms of relationships between staff members. So on a medical ward and certainly on a psychiatric ward, Sometimes you can have patients who have personality difficulties or personality disorders where they end up uh, encouraging the staff to play roles of um, uh, different parts of themselves. So, for example, one kind of patient would uh, uh, be uncooperative but in a sort of lovable way, for example, and some of the nurses on a ward might, uh, as one of my colleagues uh, said, want to bring out the therapeutic wooden stick, whereas others would be very sympathetic and let the patient get away with a little too much. And these different uh, factions of the staff that have been split by the patient, who's not aware of what he's doing consciously, would end up uh, fighting with each other. And the kinds of um, conflict they would get into could imitate uh, conflicts within the patient's psyche. Anyway, if this is not recognized, you can have a real problem on the ward between the staff. Whereas if it is recognized through a psychoanalytic understanding of what's going on in this staff group, then rather than the problem remaining in the staff, the staff problem gets sorted out and we can understand something about the conflict the patient is having between being good and bad, for example, and uh, manage the patient. Or if it's a psychiatric patient, do some psychotherapeutic work with that. Um, I'll leave it at that. There's, there's no, no end of. That's a long. That could be a long answer, but maybe you have another question. No, I. The, the, it's such a fascinating idea, and it, it really. Um, the, I mean, your whole book offers an opportunity for um, clinicians to just be much more thoughtful, introspective about their practice, and I, I think it's, um, it's such a cool idea. Um, going back to the the example of the endocrinologist. Um, and I don't know if you've, you've advised, um, colleagues of yours, but for example, how, how might that endocrinologist, um, go about, um, realizing, um, these kind of underlying, um, these underlying processes going on in the patient, um, that might be, uh, hindering therapy. Uh, you talked about, um, the, the idea of, uh, transference of, um, of the patient's feelings towards his father um, onto the onto the endocrinologist. How how might the endocrinologist um, f figure out that that kind of thing was happening? I'll, I'll I'll first say that for the specialist to figure it out is harder because a family doctor may know a patient for years, decades, or even generations, whereas a specialist usually is a pretty uh, short kind of uh, interaction. But one way would be for the specialist to become aware of how irritated, for example, he's becoming or having a different reaction to the patient emotionally than he usually has. Or he may notice that the patient is, say, an intelligent person with lots of assets and can't understand why this patient isn't doing better, whereas a less intelligent person, for example, may not be able to be as um, mindful of the ways that he could cooperate, say, in terms of diabetic control, or would need much more um, instruction. And for example, this patient might get much more instruction and not react to it very um, obviously. Or the patient might even become angry at the doctor in a way that the doctor doesn't understand because the doctor doesn't know that the patient is seeing him as a bossy controlling father. 
But if, if, he, if that occurs to him as a possibility, that the patient may be reacting to not just the endocrinologist, but to some aspect of uh, a, relate, a past relationship, then there's something to think about. On the other hand, I don't think that we can expect uh, medical and surgical specialists to spend too much of their time doing this. I think the most important thing would be aware uh, for them to be aware of the possibility something else is going on. And uh, if they have a psychoanalytically oriented psychiatrist available for consultation, they could get some help. Um, I, I just I, I think these 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 ideas are so um, um, exciting, and I, I think it, it makes sense. Um, for a psychiatrist to be giving um, advice to other clinicians um, that is related to just being as observant as possible. I think, um, you know, as I've learned about how psychiatrists um, write, write notes uh, in the hospital, you know, it, I, I guess psychiatrists are somewhat famous for, you know, commenting on the patient's um, appearance or, um, you know, possibly th does the patient smell like, um, like they, you know, ha you know, aren't taking care of themselves or aren't, um, you know, aren't showering. Um, so I, I think this just, um, it, it offers some encouragement for clinicians to be observant beyond just what is the illness that brings you in today? Yeah. Um, you um, you write that a psych psychoanalytic approach might involve encouraging patients to engage in healthy activities without directly giving advice, but rather by helping patients make their own decisions um, and come to their own conclusions. Can you speak about the, the value of this approach? Um, my first advice to physicians is not to give advice. What I mean right. is not to give concrete advice about the patient's relationships with the world. Um, that kind of advice usually is based on the, the physician's wishes, aspirations, fantasies, conflicts, and can't really be expected to, to address the patient's needs. Because um, what we usually do is give the kind of advice we would want to give ourselves. I'm, I'm excluding, of course, uh, the kind of uh, medical advice, like you need an appendectomy, which physicians are qualified to give, but many patients will ask questions about important life decisions. Should they accept a job? Should they leave their spouse? And the physician can't give a correct answer. She can't know. An appropriate response would be to inquire what difficulty the patient is having in making the decision or what he believes the physician could say that would help. The doctor can then ask the patient to describe the important considerations in making the decision and um, uh, invite the patient to elaborate further on what the problem is in deciding. So we don't have to be gods and tell the patient what's right because we don't know. It's better to encourage the patient to think and that uh, provides a benefit for itself. Giving an opinion can be destructive. It infantilizes the patient, doesn't solve his problem, about the problem of being unable to decide for himself, and encourages the unrealistic notion that the physician has the answers. This kind of physician would end up getting burdened with demanding patients whom she attracts with her omniscient attitude. Um, and that attitude actually indicates that the physician has a problem that neatly fits in with the desires of some of her patients to depend on her for answers. I think it's a greater service to the patient to investigate with him why he needs the advice rather than to reinforce his inability or refusal to think by supplying the answer. Also, if the physician is wrong, the patient has a legitimate complaint against her and someone to blame. Psychoanalysts are no better qualified to give concrete advice than our physicians. We are trained, though, to help our patients think about their unproductive and destructive behaviors and plans and try to help them understand their unconscious motivation in engaging these behaviors. And I think physicians can try to help their patients think that way, too, in the ways I've just suggested. Also, Physicians and psychoanalysts usually aren't the first people that, that patients turn to for advice. Family and friends al almost always do, often with the patient's invitation. But how much do people listen to advice even if they request it? If we think people will listen to our advice, we're likely ignoring to what extent people's motivations are governed by unconscious factors about which they have, of course, little or no awareness. So 
The motivation for people's behavior is largely outside of conscious awareness, and advice, however well-meaning or even good, is unlikely to affect it. Right. Um, and I think this brings up the point of, you know, you, you may, on the one hand, see patients who, um, who, who really um, may have a, a poor reaction to being told what to do. Um, and uh, so, I mean, your, your advice is clearly relevant for, for that kind of individual. But as you say, even, even for the individual who, um, who is asking for, for direct advice or asking the physician, just tell me what to do, um, a, a physician may benefit from, or a clinician may benefit from resisting the, the urge to simply, um, you know, give, give direct advice. Uh, Direct advice of this is what you should do. So this this is a, this brings up an interesting um, point uh, that applies in a lot of the kind of situations we're talking about, not just this one. Should the physician just deal with the content? Should I marry my wife or not? Should I marry my girlfriend or not? Or should it deal with the process? You're having trouble making a decision. Let's see if we can help you think about this. And um, you may need to do some more thinking afterwards. But if I don't have the right answer. Maybe you'll be able to find it with some help. Right. That's the that's the implied message. Right. And, and that encourages the patient to think about the next problem rather than just say, "I don't know what what the matter is." Right. Teaching a man to fish because I I mean if if you're not going through this process, the it, it's setting the patient up to just every time they he she they have a problem, um, come to the physician or or, or come to some um, advisor to to kind of make the decision for them, which is possibly not the the best um, strategy for growth. And setting the family doctor up to be too burdened by demanding patients. Yep. 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 Um, I thought one um, one part of the book um, that is is possibly most relevant to individuals um, beyond beyond medicine. I'll think, although I think there there are plenty of examples um, throughout the book that that can be applied more broadly. Um, is when you talk about um, evaluations. Um, so uh, in the book, you talk uh, as an example about the case of oral examinations in academia in which a physician um, or a physician in training might be faced. Um, but I think, again, a lot of those ideas might apply more more generally to situations in which people are being evaluated, whether it's a job interview or, or admissions interview. Can you tell us about the concepts that you present in that chapter? Sure, and I appreciated your generalization about it. I should have. If there's a second edition, I'll put it in, and and I'll uh, give you credit. Um, okay. These ideas apply to ge- generally to evaluative situations, which by their very nature are anxiety pro- uh, provoking. Let's give a name for what we're talking about and call it evaluatory anxiety. I just made it up in honor of you. Um, <laughs> in the last answer, in the la- um, uh, never mind the last answer. I can't remember right now. I emphasize the influence of individuals' real experiences, uh, including unmet emotional needs and interpersonal conflicts on the unconscious internal images one has of oneself of others. So I need to elaborate on that a bit. Um, We gradually build up in our unconscious an image of ourself, um, not as flattering probably as the one we consciously would like to maintain, and images of other people. And those are called internal objects, not a very good term. But if you think of a, an object of love being someone outside, then this is an internal object, an, an image of someone else. Um, and that's that's the, the term that we use. That's the term we use to describe this approach is called object relations. And we're talking about relationships between different parts of ourselves in our unconscious. So depending on a person's earlier experiences, especially with caretakers and authorities. An interviewee may react in a more extreme manner than appears warranted by the interview situation. The reality is daunting enough if someone's being accepted into an academic program or getting a job or passing an important exam is dependent on doing well in the interview. However, when the candidate also is experiencing anxiety because of unresolved experiences with authorities or parental figures, it's best to be aware of this and manage it. People's reactions to stressful situations differ according to their personality style. 
Some people tend to react to situations where they feel helpless with its opposite, omnipotence and grandiosity, presenting themselves as unrealistically confident and skilled. This usually is not an adaptive response, but may have developed in an individual who learned as a child that the only possibilities were to be superior or inferior, based, for example, on excessive parental expectations and the threat of derision if these expectations weren't met. So the unconscious internal images of self and the other are of an inadequate rejected child and a superior rejecting parent. That's the self-image and the object image. Under interview conditions, the interviewee may identify with the parental image and act in a realist, unrealistically superior fashion. Alternatively, and much more likely, the interviewee may, uh, may identify with the painful experience of a rejected and adequate child with plummeting confidence about her abilities to negotiate the interview successfully and concomitant increased anxiety, which will not enhance her prospects. I think it's helpful if the interviewee can keep in mind her ongoing emotional experience of the interview, similar to the endocrinologist seeing how frustrating he is getting at the patient who, after umpteen instructions, still is not maintaining good uh, diabetic control. Um, so the interviewer needs to keep in mind her ongoing emotional experience of the interview, noticing if she's becoming unduly anxious and what kind of experience she's having of the interview situation. This is challenging when one is trying to focus on responding optimally to the interviewer's questions. An interviewee who is somewhat familiar with her own personality style, and in particular her areas of sensitivity and vulnerability, and how she's likely to respond when feeling anxious, is better equipped to handle these reactions during the interview. Now, one could call this self-analysis, and it's something that people can try to do on their own. The um, object of psychoanalysis, psychoanalytic psychotherapy, its derivative, is actually to set in motion the process of self-analysis that the patient has for the rest of their life, long after they finish their therapy, and that really involves an awareness of oneself and an increased capacity to become more aware of what one isn't aware of at any given time. Um, and in that way, psychoanalysis um, differs from other treatments. In most other medical treatments, what we're trying to do is to attain a restitito ad integrum, to use the Latin expression, which means get the patient back to where he was before. The best you can expect is to get the patient back to the um, state of wellness they were before they became ill. Um, there are some exceptions in medicine, I guess. If you have a person with a congenital heart defect, for example, you can, with, with surgery that works, you can actually get them better than how they ever were. But generally, that isn't the case in medicine. However, and that's the same in most psychiatric treatments, you want to have the patient recovered from their illness, from their symptoms. But in psychoanalysis, you're actually hoping to help the patient not only get better, but grow in a way that they keep growing throughout their life. Maybe you can help us because I, I think one one of the uh, most common criticisms of psychoanalytic psychotherapy is, all right, um, you know, I, I've realized that I am nervous um, during these, uh, let's say, job interviews or, um, you know, evaluative experiences because, um, I, I always felt evaluated by my father. All right, so I, I've I, I've I've figured that out. Where where do I go from here? How does how does that help me? How does simply knowing um, or um, having that hypothesis um, help me improve? So what you're talking about right now, Alec, is intellectual insight, which is important. Uh, it's necessary but not sufficient. It's important but not enough. Um, what a um, what a psychoanalysis or psychoanalytic uh, psychotherapy can accomplish, which isn't aimed at in other um, psychotherapies, but sometimes other psychotherapies provide some of it, is a transformative experience with another person. This is why uh, the attempts to uh, have computers perform psychotherapy uh, are, are inevitably uh, failures. Um, and part of that experience is that the the patient has a transference with the therapist. In other words, transfers onto the therapist or analyst the same kinds of experience that they're struggling with in the rest of their life. So there's a chance for the therapist to observe 
is being invited to play a role that the patient has with other with other individuals, and to step back, <coughs> excuse me, and engage the patient in a um, emotionally uh, significant uh, ongoing conversation about the conflict as, as it's happening between them. Um, and that uh, can be quite transformative, especially if the therapist allows himself to feel the same kinds of experience based on his own experience, identifying with what the patient is feeling and the patient sensing that the therapist or analyst is prepared to undergo that kind of experience, something like what the patient is having makes a difference to patients. And this is much of the work is done on the unconscious. The patient and the analyst are not aware of what's happening. The, the analytic training is intended to make the analyst at least to some extent aware of what's happening so that they can mo modify how they're going to react and also uh, decide what to say to the patient about what's going on. Other therapies don't uh, have this uh, kind of approach at all. Right, and and um, I think this brings up another way in which applying psychoanalysis or a psychoanalytic ideas to um, practicing other uh, other types of medicine, family care, um, and other specialties, um, because I think there's this idea that the not only can the clinician um, be offering treatments that will make make the patient feel better, but um, what happens in the session itself um, can actually be making the, the patient feel better, and and that that can be possible um, in other specialties, even if um, if other specialists may not immediately think that. Um, I'm trying to th I'm trying to think of an example in which in which that would happen, but um, right, the the specialists just by uh, employing some of the, these techniques, the patient can feel better after the the twenty or thirty minutes that they spend with with the physician, regardless of the, if they're leaving with their you know prescription for um, for painkillers or whatever else. Um. I think uh, I'm thinking now of family doctors who know the patients on an ongoing basis. I think if, to the extent the patient feels heard and understood by the physician, that makes a difference to them. Maybe that's Absolutely. what you mean. I, I think I think that's one one example of what I mean. And I'm sure you know we've all had experiences um, with doctors where we feel better after the appointment, um, even if it has nothing to do with uh, a new medication or um, any any procedure. Um, and that, I think that's a valuable lesson that other types of clinicians can take from psychoanalysis, just the idea that the appointment itself um, can be therapeutic. I'm thinking of a different kind of example. Um, Physicians invariably get complaints from patients, and some patients are going to be more prone to complain than others. But I think if a physician senses that a patient is dissatisfied, the physician serves himself and the patient very well by indicating that to the patient and inviting the patient to talk about what they might be dissatisfied about. Not only concretely might they sort out a dissatisfaction or even something that may help directly the patient's um, medical care, but also the patient is going to feel that some, on some level the doctor understands him, if only his dissatisfaction, um, and it's going to obviate uh, the possibility of uh, the patient complaining to the medical college about the doctor. So I think being aware of a problem in a relationship like that on, an, on a very moment-to-moment -moment basis can really be helpful. And a lot of us would rather just you know forget about it and get on to the next patient, but I think Investing a few minutes can save a lot, save several hours. Absolutely, and, and very clear how this uh, applies across um, across many different special uh, uh, medical um, specialties, or pretty much all of them. Well, uh, I think you. I, I just sorry, wanted to emphasize. Sorry, I wanted to emphasize the important thing is for the doctor to be aware of how the patient seems to be feeling and how he himself is feeling. If he's getting a little nervous, for example or wants to get the patient out of the room, or has a fantasy, say the patient will complain. That would be a real good reason 
to ask. If only you had that fantasy, that would be a good reason to say, is there something you're not happy about with me today or with what we're doing? It makes all the difference in the world. It makes all the difference for for the reasons we've been talking about. Um, and it, I mean, I, I would imagine it, it can, it, it it's going to um, allow you to develop a, a more intimate, closer relationship with the patient, which of course is so important. Um, you take on the idea of um, physician suicide, uh, and unfortunately, um, all too common um, event in the medical field. Uh, can you talk about how psychoanalytic thinking can help us understand and address this um, this issue of physician suicide? I have a lot of thoughts about this. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna answer that at length. If you if you feel I'm going too long, just let me know. Okay. Um, Psychoanalysis began as the study of unconscious motivation of repressed sexual and aggressive impulses that became symbolized by a conversion symptom. So, for example, um, you might feel like punching someone in the mouth and you end up with a, a, a paralyzed arm as a way of, of preventing that kind of aggression and symbolizing the impulse to hit by its opposite. Psychoanalysis expanded to explore unconscious motivations of many aspects of life. Unconscious motivations to become a physician include fear of illness, which is often related to illness in the physician's family of origin, with a consequent unconscious wish to heal one's parents. And that's similar to wishes that often motivate someone to become a psychotherapist or psychoanalyst. By the way, um, I advise strongly against being a tea party or cocktail party psychoanalyst. People will not take well to even, they'll take even worse to correct interpretations about what an unconscious person's motive, a person's unconscious motivation is uh, to choose a, um, a, a, a vocation. Um, so we don't do that kind of thing. Um, another common finding uh, is that in, in physicians is the denial of mortality. And this can uh, assume the form of, a, of omnipotent manic defense against the awareness of the inevitability of aging, illness, and death. Now, an omnipotent manic defense consists of a denial of normal human limitations, combined with feeling that one can, can accomplish anything, feeling like Superman. This defense is difficult to sustain for any length of time in people who still maintain some contact with reality. Um, when it collapses, it all, often is followed by what it's intended to defend against, feelings of depression, despair, hopelessness, and powerlessness. Uh, so this uh, helps to explain some physicians' potential vulnerability to depression and suicidal feelings. Now, I want to make a connection between a child's need to cure her parent, which involves an excessive burden on the future young physician, with the excessive kinds of demands that some people make of themselves that can get them in trouble. One can understand this situation as representing an excessively demanding figure in the patient's unconscious internal world that I describe as a persecutory internal object. This is a persecuting image of someone else that's unconscious. This may be based, at least in part, on demands the child's parents made on her beyond what she could meet. So this could, incur, this could include curing a parent's emotional disturbance, becoming the success a, patient, a parent himself longed to be, or providing a parent with what the parent's partner isn't providing emotionally. These early experiences often have their parallel in the adult life of physicians when they don't set limits on what they think they can accomplish, including working excessively long hours, allowing themselves to be emotionally overburdened by demanding patients who don't respect the physician's boundaries, and generally trying to do the impossible. Omnipotence again. Working under the burden of such a demanding internal master can make physicians more vulnerable to despair and accompanying suicidal feelings. Alice Miller, in Prisoners of Childhood, the drama of the gifted child, writes about the gifted, intelligent child who many medical students were in their youth. If an intelligent child grows up in a family with significant ongoing problems, and the parent's capacity to deal with the problems is limited, the child may end up volunteering or being enlisted to help. The child might have a positive experience in this and gain confidence in her capacities. On the other hand, the child might gradually assume the role of problem solver or caregiver for the family and learn to relegate her own needs and wishes to a secondary position to those of the family. 
This can happen in many ways, for example, by providing emotional support and practical help, or eventually financial assistance to parents, by assuming parental responsibilities, taking care of siblings, feeding them and sending them off to school, or by becoming the confidant of one or both parents. This manner of relating, which might be the best adaptation the child can find to the family's, the family's problems at the time, may become a pattern that continues in the child's life into adulthood. It's easy to see how, if this person becomes a physician, they may have difficulty limiting the demands of patients or of other healthcare professionals and hospital or university administrations on them. The more the future physician's parents are preoccupied with their own difficulties, and the more the gifted child ends up being preoccupied with their difficulties, the less they all have time, energy, and attention to devote to the child's need to develop and to explore his interests, talents, ambitions, and aspirations. The child might be rewarded for assuming the role of caregiver, at least by receiving some appreciation from his parents, but he might grow up longing for much more attention, affection, and interest than his parents can provide. This sense of unmet emotional needs is painful, and usually is blocked out of conscious awareness, but continues to affect the individual thus burdened. Tendencies that start in childhood usually continue into teenage years and young adult life, the result may be a gifted child who grows up learning how to be a caregiver with an unconscious longing to be cared for himself that continues to be unfulfilled. In addition to the longings continuing to be frustrated in adult life, another problem is that physicians may bring these unmet needs into their relationships with their patients, sometimes with results that are not in the patient's best interests. One of the most destructive forms of this is becoming involved in a sexual relationship with a patient. Now, to the extent that their self-esteem is based on satisfying the demands of her patients and medical and non-medical colleagues, contemporary representatives of her family of origin, the physician will suffer when she inevitably can't meet these demands, and also suffer by expending too much time and effort in trying to meet them, time and effort that should be devoted to her and her nuclear family's welfare. At this point, she becomes vulnerable to feeling depressed and possibly suicidal, depending on how severe her inter internal demands are on herself, based on what I uh, call uh, the persecutory internal object. I'm going to digress for a second. I think women are generally recognized to be more tending to be uh, giving care, considerate of others. This is a terrible generalization. More um, in tune emotionally. And that may help explain why female physicians have a much higher rate of completed suicide than females who aren't physicians. If I recall correctly, there isn't much of a difference between completed suicides in females and male physicians, whereas men who are not physicians have a much higher rate of completed suicide than women. Anyway, for all individuals, an important protective factor against suicidal feelings and behavior is the establishment of positive enough unconscious internal images of self and others. That is a positive enough self-image and internal objects. This should favor positive relationships between these internal figures so they can work together in influencing individuals to take care of themselves and enhance the likelihood of positive experiences with other individuals in the world. The establishment and maintenance of a positive self-image and positive internal objects comes about to a considerable extent by the internalization of qualities of others with whom we have positive relationships and the internalization of feelings about these relationships, which also favor realistic positive expectations about potential relationships. This, of course, begins in our first relationships with parental figures, who are most influential in the establishment of a positive self-image and internal objects, and expectations of positive relationships with others. Medical studies and practice offer many opportunities for internalizing positive experiences, these include relationships with fellow students and eventually physicians at a peer level, as well as relationships with teachers, supervisors, mentors, and professional leaders, such as hospital department chiefs and chairs of academic departments, and relationships with subordinates, such as students and residents when one is a consultant. Of course, adult experiences with friends and family on an ongoing basis are similarly internalized and influential, as well as our relationships with our patients. All of these types of relationships naturally have the capacity to generate negative interactions as well, some of which can be very hurtful. 
and may favor the development of a more negative self-image, more negative internal objects, that is, negative unconscious Im images of others, and the unconscious expectation of more negative experiences and relationships with others. Unfortunately, this results not just in an unconscious expectation of negative experience with others, but also a perception of negative experience that other people without the same negative experience of relationships might not perceive. It can even result in a tendency to provoke or invite negative experience with others, which can involve a self-fulfilling prophecy and a vicious cycle. That is, people whose experiences have been too negative for them to cope with are at greater risk to develop negative self-images and internal objects. This influences them to expect negative experiences with others, to interpret interpersonal experiences more negatively than might be realistic, and even to induce others to engage with them in negative experiences. Physicians can focus on doing their best to reduce their own risk by become, of becoming suicidal, succumbing to depression, resorting to substance abuse, or other self-destructive solutions. Three main areas of human endeavor are love, work, and play. Medical students generally have no difficulty with work, although the danger of their overworking is clear. Regarding love, no accomplishment at work or professional recognition can replace the satisfaction and gratification that come from positive attachments to people to whom one is close. Neither can achievement in one's career replace the excitement or pleasure obtainable from a recreational activity that is unrelated to one's chosen work, however valuable this work is. The importance to adults of play, both recreationally and as a necessary part of development and creativity, both in childhood and adult life, is well recognized. The physician who is too dependent on ongoing achievement and professional recognition, and who lacks the ongoing support of non-work-related positive attachments and gratification from interests, will be at increased, increased risk for disappointment, depression, and even suicidal thoughts when the workplace doesn't provide what he demands of it. Based on early relational experiences, he may place too heavy a burden on work to provide gratifications that also should be derived from other areas in life. No amount of conventional success can substitute for the development of the self-respect, purpose, and integrity that can be achieved with the proper balance of work, love, and play. Physicians who take care of themselves and their families who lead reasonably balanced and thoughtful lives and derive satisfaction from several areas of life, won't have their eggs all in one basket. When there's a hole in the basket and they don't get the gold medal or the promotion, when their research isn't published in the most prestigious journal, or when they must relinquish the basket at retirement, they won't be left with no eggs. Thank you for that uh, for that answer. And, and I... Um... You know, I asked you about physician suicide, but you gave a much more um, holistic answer of, of kind of the issues facing physicians. And right, I mean, even if it, if, I mean, it, it is infrequent, um, happily, that, um, that although, although not infrequent enough that, that um, things escalate to physician suicide, um, you know, the the issues that do lead to suicide are are pervasive among physicians, and uh, and one thing that I w was thinking of as you were speaking is, um, you know, in in the example of a of a child who, um, whose role with their parents is is as the problem solver, um, you know, it, it, in terms of viewing oneself with a positive self image, uh, that can be. A wonderful thing because the the child is learning to um, to feel pleasure and um, feel reward in um, in solving problems and in helping other people. Um, so it is important to. Um, be aware of that and and be you know be glad that um, you have uh, have that quality um, but then just make sure that it doesn't go too far in the other direction um, by making you feel bad about yourself or about um, taking on other people's problems to the extent that they are you know dragging you down I think I think what I was talking about was when the the, the child gets co-opted by the parents, and, and and that's the main child's main role in the family. 
Mm-hmm. That, that's uh, that's setting the child up for uh, for, um, for lots of problems, making them very lots vulnerable. of problems. Yeah. In uh, and now I, this is uh, kind of of a final question, uh, maybe more for the writers out there, and also, um, I mean, for myself, uh, thinking about writing. Um, in 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 your envoy at the end of the book, you write, um, books I like best are those in which the author becomes a live person to me and with whom I feel acquainted while reading her book. Um, and and I, I loved reading that. And I think that's a um, that's a aim that many writers um, ha- may have. Uh, as a writer, what tools or approaches do you use to as you strive to become, as you say, a live person to your reader? It's a timely question because I just got some feedback uh, uh, about the book from two colleagues who said that um, um, it was quite an intimate experience reading the book and they got to know me better that way, and I, I liked that. Um, I, I, my answer would be that it's the same as being with a patient, being authentic, um, using my sense of humor, both in a way that's sensitive to the patient as well as to the limits of what I'm prepared to disclose, um, either in a book or to a patient. Some self-disclosure is inevitable in human interactions, whether it's psychoanalytic work with a patient or writing a book that's available to the general public. Uh, Avoiding self-disclosure because too much of it interferes with the treatment is the starting point in psychoanalysis. Analysts depart from that more or less depending on their personalities and their theoretical orientations. However, trying to avoid all self-disclosure, even if it were possible, also discloses somewhat about the individual something of the individual. Um, also, trying to avoid all self-disclosure would make it a very make for a very unnatural, stilted therapeutic relationship. So getting back to your question, Alec, I think some judicious, deliberate self-disclosure in writing, in addition to what we disclose without being aware of it, engages the reader. In writing a book, I think it's more effective to acknowledge that I've made mistakes and have tried to learn from them, rather than to present myself as some kind of an omniscient authority and the reader who can identify with the writer is more open to receiving what the writer is offering with some humility. So I guess I'm trying to communicate to, to each reader directly in as personal way as I can, given the medium. Right, right. And, I, and, and again, I think many have that, that aim, but it is, it's tough to do. So it's, it's helpful to hear that advice. Um, we, we end every interview with the question, uh, what are you working on now? What's up next for you? Um, I'm hoping to um, have a, my second book come out this fall. It's a sister book to this one. I mentioned that um, I took the psychiatric and medically oriented papers that I added to for the first book. And this book will be called Psychoanalysis and Mental Health, Applying Psychoanalytic Thought to contemporary provision of mental health care. So it's aimed at mental health professionals. Um, and these, these papers are the ones that deal with individual psychotherapy and group psychotherapy uh, with uh, um, psycho, psycho, that are psychologically informed. Um, so that's what I'm working on. But I was tempted to, um, in retrospect, think that both books um, are books that probably the average discerning patient could read because I think they would learn a lot about the kind of physician or therapist uh, they would like to choose in uh, uh, reading about the examples of different ways of caring for patients in both these books. So I'm hoping that um, some people who are patients, which is pretty much everyone, uh, might be interested in these books too. I think that's so right. And I think, um, you know, in, in psychotherapy, uh, I think it's important to encourage the the patient to have, uh, an active role in, in, um, in their therapy, whether that's, um, kind of giving the, giving the clinician advice about how, um, the patient themselves wants to be treated or, um, kind of things that are working for them or things that are not working for them. So, um, yeah, I, I would think that reading um, this book and and the the book that you that you have coming out would be really valuable for for a very wide audience. As you say, every, everyone or nearly everyone is a patient at some time in their lives. 
I want to elaborate on what you said because I thought it was really important um, uh, regarding uh, a, a physician or a therapist um, listening to a patient's feedback or, or supervision, you could say, about how they want to be treated. That's so true, but uh, a psychoanalytic point of view would take uh, the idea, the point that um, much of what the patient, much of the feedback the patient gives us is unconscious, and we have to um, um, uh, interpret it. We have to find out. So, for example, the patient might complain about a boss, complain to the doctor about a boss who's not listening, or a boss who wants things all their own way. And this may be a patient who's uh, where the the doctor's secretary had changed the appointment three times, and, and the patient was getting kind of aggravated. And if, if the doctor is listens with what someone called the third ear, they might realize that it's possible the patient isn't just complaining about the boss, but about them too. And if they ask about that possibility, just saying something like, is it possible that you're talking not just about your boss, but some kind of frustration with me? He shows the patient that he's open to hearing about it, and some patients will actually respond. And that's a new level of intimacy. And also a problem can get sorted out. Maybe the secretary has to be asked not to switch patients' appointments quite so many times. Right. And it just drives home the point of, you know, the importance of, of observation, reading between the lines. Um, you know, again, not just the content of what a patient says, but um, really as a scientist, taking all of the data in that you see in, during a patient visit uh, and trying to get as much information as you can from, from what you hear from the patient. Yeah. Right. Is there time for a bit more? Yeah, please go ahead. I was just going to say, I was, um, at the beginning of my book, I observe how technological medical practices become. We rely much more on tests and much less on clinical examination than we used to, unfortunately. Um, there's, there's algorithms of management. Um, I could go on, but I can't think of the rest of them, but it's, it's very much pro we're sort of programmed. We haven't got to the point yet where a memory chip gets inserted in our head, but we might not be far off from that. Um, so much information doesn't have to be learned anymore. It's available at one's fingertips on the phone. But I think, um, getting back to the essentials of patient, doctor or therapist, uh, patient communication and making observations about what's happening in the, in the moment in the interview uh, can give so much that uh, no test or algorithm can provide. So, so a, a good selling point for, for your books may be, um, you know, this is, uh, this is a great strategy for um, job security because like we're really learning things that, that really uh, a, a computer really could not, uh, could not replicate. Fair enough. Yeah. Um, Dr. Steinberg, thank you so much for joining us today. At the end of the book, you uh, part part of the um, part of the way in which you um, kind of like to get to know your reader or signify that you've gotten to know your reader or they've gotten to know you is is explicitly saying farewell to them. So um, I I did feel like I got to know you during the book, and I appreciated getting to know you during the interview. Um, and and I really appreciate our time together. My pleasure, Alec. Thank you too. All right. Thank you.